Hi, welcome to the Neurosec Podcast, where we unite people and organizations to support and advance neurodiverse people in cybersecurity and beyond to make the world more diverse and inclusive. My name is Nathan Chung, and today my special guest is Tiffany Jemison. She is managing partner at Grit and Flow, co-founder at the Indie Gifts Movement, and managing partner at Cognitive Diversity. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yep, great. First, tell me more about Grit and Flow, Indie Gifts Movement, and Cognitive Diversity. Well, Grit and Flow is my company. I started it about three years ago when I was finishing up my master's. Um, and when I was finishing up my master's, I was doing a capstone program on, I did a business plan. So I ended up doing on something related to autism since I have an autistic son. And I found out about the 85% unemployment rate and I literally fell off my chair and I was like, holy bleep, bleep, bleep. Mm -hmm. This is not okay. I'm just so not okay with this. So what am I going to do about it? Um, And at that point, I researched and I realized there there are no answers. No one knows anything. Um, So I started Grit and Flow without really knowing what it was going to end up being, but really just wanting to improve the employment outcomes for individuals with autism. So I did that. And then I also decided to um, get into a PhD program in organizational psychology. So the organizational psychology and research really uh, fuels grit and flow because we're all research based on um, trying to help companies change the way they're Change the way they're they're working. We don't want to do a hiring initiative. We want to say, okay, how are we going to change our onboarding, our processes, everything else, so people can come to work, be themselves. Our big saying is, how do you work best? So we want employers to go, hey, Tiffany, how do you work best? Let's give you what you need to work best. And I feel it takes away the need to disclose or the way need to put everybody in a bucket about, you know, they need this because they're autistic. They need this because they're a female in technology. I mean, it, whatever it may be. Um, so that's kind of where our passion goes. Um, so with Andy Gifts Movement, um, I was recruited by Ronan McGovern, who is a Stanford graduate school uh, graduate. Um, he decided to take this eight-week sprint, they were calling it, the Stanford Rebuild which was a project they started to get people thinking in, in, uh, differently um, when it came to COVID. So mm-hmm. anybody could be involved. So Ronan took about 10 weeks off of his banking job in Ireland and started uh, talking to everybody in the world regarding neurodiversity. And wow. at that point, he eventually talked to me one day and uh, he said, you're the yin to my yang. And those are my words, but we um, we had complementary skills. I knew more of the neurodiversity population and he focused more on kind of the the passion. He was very passionate about it. And we went from trying to come up with a product to deciding to do a paper. And the paper ended up having 27 authors around the country that never knew each other working together. And we created, yeah, it was, it was like probably my most exciting experience in my life because we, we, we decided to write it in three voices. So we'd have a business case and we had a lot of people that are neurodivergent that were writing. And then we had, uh, I led a team that wrote about the research that we think can be done to really show the innovative brain of neurodivergence. Um, but the, my favorite part with the process was these town hall reviews we had. So we would throw, um, you know, uh, something we were writing about intersectionality. We'd invite anybody to come that was in this big network we created and we would go through the paper 
and we would go through the sections and we would talk and say, I don't agree with that. Or I don't like that you use uh, people of color. I want to be called black. There's a lot of, you know, stuff in the, the, you know, culture. So we would talk with all this diverse stakeholders from all over the world with all different, you know, opinions. And we would walk through each issue and at least we could address them and pull them together. But how often can you get a group of international people being frank and honest? (laughs) I mean, it was, it was lovely that, we did this. So we got the paper out. Um, Bank of America supported the paper. So did AIB Bank in Ireland. Um, and from there, it was kind of, what do we do next? So we've broken into regions um, to allow us to have a, you know, all the different time zones we're dealing with to have uh, meetings where they can be more quaint. Um, so we have a European chapter. We have an Asia Pacific chapter, a North American chapter, and we are just starting South America. So they put on their own kind of education series and talk, um, but we still have a global effort to do more. Um, So what we're doing is starting projects and they're not going to be like a big paper like we did. They're going to be smaller projects. So what I'm leading is called contextual factors. So we're looking at the leadership, um, leadership of neurodivergent, including neurodivergence being leaders. Um, We're looking at, not going from hiring initiatives, but looking for more systemic change within the process. So kind of things like that. We have some people are looking at um, neurodivergence in academia. Um, We have others that are looking for environment, are looking at environmental factors, um, like physical environmental factors that impact workplaces, such as building designs and things like that. So that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. So if you, you go to ndgiftsmovement.com, you can find out all about it. Um, and my last little gig I'm doing this cognitive diversity is, is a um, company I started with Larry Rothman. We met through the Stanford Design Thinking Workshop um, hosted by Lawrence Fung and the uh, Stanford Neurodiversity Project. Um, our team won um, this whole design thinking peer reviewed and we had come up with a neurodiversity inclusion index. Um, so we're finding ways to take that and really make it a product product that can be relied upon. Um, So it would allow individuals who are neurodivergent to rate companies on certain factors that are deemed successful. So for things that are important to someone who's neurodivergent, you don't usually find if you go to indeed.com, you know, Hmm. but we have, yeah, we have different needs. Oh, no, you guys have different needs. I'm not neurodivergent, (laughs) but I consider myself adopted. Um, (laughs) So it would be able to look and say, hey, I need a company that's got flexible work policy, and offers accommodations through interviews easily, who's had this experience that's been good? And we would be able to rate them and be like, okay, I want to go apply at that company because they seem to already have their act together for the things I need to be successful instead of trying to break down barriers. And we are hoping that it would create a way for companies to want to be an inclusive, want to score high on this index. Um, And that will hopefully lead to really big change. Um, so we're working on all that right now with some partners and, and we're hoping to get something kind of figured out by the end of the year where we have a baseline to to use and then we can kind of grow off of that. So those are those are some of the projects I'm in. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Where, where do you find the energy? <laughs> I'm very energetic. I, I, don't sit, I don't sit still very well. I like I like to think and I'm very curious and I love to learn and I love people. So it just kind of comes naturally. Incredible. And tying into the next point, the cybersecurity is often cited as being a great 
potential career fit for people who are who have neurodiverse conditions. What are your thoughts? Yes, I mean, I think any job is good for somebody with neurodivergent conditions. Um, cybersecurity, I think, it's attractive because I think the neurodivergents are are extremely curious. And I'm going to speak more from a, an autistic standpoint. I, with my son with autism and my dissertations on autism, I mean, I, I focus on neurodiversity in general, but um, autism I know really, really well. And not everybody is going to fit into that, but there are groups and they could just look at problems so well and look at the big picture and process things. Um, and I think you need that type of unique perspective because you're trying to guess what people may be doing in the future not what people mm. have done. And so I think you need that um, innovation of thought, which I think a lot of neurodivergents have. So I do think it's a great career. I don't think it's a career for everybody. I know so many people who are neurodivergent that are, <laughs> we have one technology phobic, <laughs> you know, or, yes. or, you know, they're artistic, um, you know, things like that. So I'm, I'm careful not to stigmatize that people, only people at neurodivergent are cybersecurity, but I do mm -hmm. think there are many that find happiness in doing that because there are some innate skills in many autistics that, that make that popular. Yep. And I leave that point because when I, when I heard at first about how great a fit is for, for uh, how cybersecurity can really for people who are neurodiverse, I thought the same as you eventually because many of our fellow advocates in, neuro, in the neurodiversity space, they say that, yep, some people who are neurodiverse are, can be really good at cybersecurity, but at the same time, we should not pigeonhole them, so to speak. It's like a wide range. Some people can might they be good at things like art or music much better. Yeah, I think it's like, how can you, any human being or class of humans, we all have multiple dimensions. Yes. And you can't pigeonhole, let's see, I'm a, a Hispanic, white, dish, female, don't pigeonhole me into something. I was a programmer, you know, in, in high school, you know, and I went to high school in the, uh, gosh, I don't want to tell you, but <laughs> I graduated in the early 90s. Um, I was probably the only varsity song leader going to take the AP computer science test. You know, people are looking at me, and this is like Turbo Pascal days. Um, no, I remember people, Pascal. Yeah, I love Turbo <laughs> Pascal. Why can't Turbo Pascal come back? The other stuff's so funny. <laughs> but um, you know, I mean, it was it was people were stereotyping me. They expected a certain thing out of me, and when I you know walked away in my little cheerleader skirt to go take an AP computer science exam, I was like, don't don't put me in a bucket. Hmm. Well, you know. I I went to high school back in the 90s as well. So, <laughs> Okay, I feel better. <laughs> yeah. So the next question, one of the biggest barriers facing neurodiverse workers today is the negative stigma and it makes it, makes it a difficult decision to disclose one's condition or not. How, how do you feel about, about disclosure? I think disclosure is one number one issues, the number one issue. So I always talk about three things that I in mo most of my presentations that, that I think are really causing the complexity of the employment, I call it equation. Um, one is disclosure, but because of the concealable nature of neurodivergent people, um, and you know, a lot of most disabilities, it's like 96% of disabilities are also concealable. So you just put all that together, um, I think that creates a challenge because 
people don't, you know, assume they they need help. Um, so a lot of the research I'm doing right now is showing that employers would rather hire somebody with a physical disability than a mental disability. Hmm. And there's a ton or psychiatric. And I think it's because it's what they don't know. Yes. And so when someone just needs, you know, not just, but someone needs a ramp or mm. someone's um, low vision, those things are easier, I think, for someone to process in their head on how they can help and how to talk to it. But when you run into things such as the way someone thinks differently or applies a problem, it's scary for people because they don't know. Um, I, yeah, I totally agree with that because it's, it, it's like tangible versus intangible. Totally, intangible. totally. It's like, how do you put your, and, and, you know, I think that creates a challenge, the concealable with disclosures, because it really does end up being on the individual to disclose. And right now, the education, there's so much education that needs to be done in the employment area yes. on, on really the range of neurodivergent people. Um the coke occurring we talk a lot about you know you know adhd is this but a lot of people with adhd have anxiety and you know we try to talk about you know you're looking at somebody and you're making conclusions not about their adhd you're making conclusions about their anxiety but do you know that the environment you're putting them in or is making them be disabled they're they would be fine in the right environment Mm -hmm. they wouldn't become disabled because of their ADHD, they're becoming disabled because of the world they're trying to work in, which is causing their system to overload, which is causing their resources to get drained, which is causing anxiety and burnout. So if we can get people creating environments where we don't have to, to burn out and we don't, you know, we can kind of embrace more of those ways we work, we all work different. um, Then I think we're going to have, you know, people who don't have to disclose then. Um, And then at the same time, I think identity is an important thing. Um, Yes. Right now, the way the laws are written for the ADA and the ADAA, um, it falls under disability. And I know a number of people and research that tells me I do not identify as being disabled. I am not broken. I don't have, Mm. you know, something wrong with me that I need to be accommodated. I have you know, a different way I think at things, which is not something that's wrong with me. Yes. Um, so that's kind of the neurodiversity movement. But if you don't ide- identify as being, um, you know, autistic and you don't identify as having a disability, are you going to go say, I need accommodation through the ADA? I think it just, it's so complex in those things. And that's why, you know, Grit and Flow, we really talk about how can we take away those barriers of disclosure, identity, and the concealable nature of a lot of people's, um, I'm going to say impairments for lack of a better word. It's by allowing everybody to say, how do I work best? Yes. And giving everybody that. So that, yep. that's how I feel about that. I really think it's a huge, huge, substantial barrier right now for employment. Yep, it is. Because in my experience, Many workplaces still follow traditional management styles that are rather structured and they follow a command and control model similar to a factory. As such, typical management practices expect a certain amount of productivity from each worker that no diverse workers often fail to meet. Often this this puts them at a clear disadvantage 
it's like comparing apples to oranges almost. How, how do you feel? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I understand. You know, I am a business person, and you know, I have an MBA, so I understand the bottom line. And I think the challenge is, is we're thinking we have to get to the bottom line in a certain lot. We take a straight line there. Yes. But I think if we embrace people, we're going to get more out of them than we thought. So instead of taking that energy to go through a process that's been traditional, taking the energy to grow your people to be who they need to be, you're going to really um, see the benefits in that bottom line. I mean, if you think of one thing, so somebody, this, this is research and talking to people, the retention rates for neurodivergent that feels they're in a good environment and supported and getting what they need is ridiculous. They'll stay in a job. Yes. Where normal turnover is higher. So to turn over somebody, depending on the position, could be two to three times their salary, annual salary. So that means if you can make some of those changes, which really are more culture changes than anything or applying some accommodations, you can save so much money as a company and it will pay for itself over and over and over again. Um, I don't think companies really understand that. Um, but I got to say, I, I got to admit something lately. So I have a team of three and all of them are neurodivergent. And as we grow, I am exhausted trying to man- to take what they're saying and, and think about it and put it into how they're really meaning and how their mind's working and translate it into the way that my mind's used to working to figure out where we're at. And I would last week it hit me. It just, it really hit me as I was pretty exhausted from managing my team, which is great because we're doing a lot of great stuff. Then I started thinking, this is what they feel every day. This is what they feel in every situation in their life. Mm. It's taking what everybody else is saying and trying to figure out what they really mean. Yep, and like we're lost in translation. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like this is the best thing I've ever done is to have this team because they are teaching me so much. And so when, you know, when I talk to companies and I talk to people, I am like practicing what I preach. Hmm. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's not undoable. It's just, you have to make the effort, the conscious effort that you want to embrace people in general. You know what? That's a very good point because at the end of the day, it's, we could say where we want, but we can't. It all comes down to each individual person making that choice. It does. I mean, you have to, as a manager, decide you're going to put your ego aside and you're going to figure out how to manage this individual the way they need to be managed. Hmm. And, you know, when you work with people who are neurodivergent, Many of them are not going to do impression management is the technical term. I call it butt kissing, uh, you know, or um, actually I'm working on my LinkedIn learning training. I'm like, how do we say link, uh, butt kissing in an appropriate way? Um, <laughs> but so we had a good, a good laugh over that one. But, um, you know, you're not going to find a lot of butt kissing. You're not going to find a lot of sugar coating. And it's refreshing if you get past the fact that that stuff really isn't that important. Like, I love it now. We get to the point, we get things done. Um, it's it's awesome, but it's different than what we're used to. Yes. So you just kind of got to learn to adjust to it. Yes. And be willing to. Yes, indeed. And that the big that, uh, that transitions us to our next point, because things get harder because leaders often follow thinking such as, if it ain't broke, why fix it? Or this is how things have always been done, or even... Because at the end of the day, any attempts to, 
to disrupt the status quo at many companies are often challenged, even more so for neurodiversity. And I think it's quite, at the end, quite simply, change is hard. <laughs> change yeah. is really hard. Change is hard. I mean, that's why we believe strongly that being, you know, business or organizational psychologist and working on that change is so important. I mean, that's why I have getting my PhD in it because change is hard and, you know, it ain't broke. Why fix it? It's broken, everybody. Mm. It's broken. Why is there so much focus on culture? Why is there so many mental health challenges? It's because it's broken. Um, and, you know, we're, if you think about this and, um, the World Health Organization reports that 15% of humanity is disabled in some way. And the traditional definition of disabled, which means neurodiversity would fall underneath it. So that means that 15%, you just think about this in some ways, 15% of your workforce is probably going to be disabled. So if you don't change, you're now losing the opportunity to get talent. And talent is, is what you need. You, you don't have a company if you don't have people. And as much as we talk about AI or anything else, someone's got to program the AI, someone's got to maintenance the AI, uh, whatever it is, we need people. And so if you're not changing the way you're doing things to, to, to support a good portion of the population, your company's going to fail. And it's just mm -hmm. growing and growing and growing. I mean, we're seeing like 700,000 people in the next five years are going to graduate with autism that need jobs. Yes. And also you think about the pool on our society. So the broken thing is if we don't give people jobs that deserve jobs, they're going to try to be reliant on a system in our society that we're all going to end up paying for. And then it's going to, you know, it just, it spirals into negativity and bad outcomes for our economy, for the people, um, you know, for our youth for moving forward. Um, we need healthy people reproducing great citizens. And if you have people that can never get to that part in their life, you know, what's going to happen to us? I know that's kind of an extreme example, but, you know, it, there are consequences to things. Yes. And it, it is true. It's, it's definitely true. But people don't think about it. In fact, the, at companies, when a neurodiverse worker asks for accommodations, many organizations, just they just see a broken, disabled worker who can't keep up with everyone else. And in Accommodation equals increased costs. So how, how would you address this line of thinking and how do you how would you change an organization's outlook on that? Well, research says, and you'll hear me say that a lot, the average accommodation is free or five hundred dollars. Like under five hundred dollars. So there's not a whole lot that needs to be done. If it is an assistive technology, most of the time the individual has the assistive technology they bring with them. Um, a lot of the basic uh, Microsoft and Apple have so much built into them now mm, that yes. by just embracing what you already have in your, your um, I don't know, toolbox at work, you're going to have a lot of things to accommodate people. Maybe you just need to learn to use them or you just have to have your mm. IT department enable them, something like that. So I think, you know, that's kind of what I say with the accommodations is don't be intimidated by it. But what some research has shown us is that coworkers who can't see that somebody has a you know cognitive diversity or an impairment or whatever you want, if they see somebody else getting something that they don't get, even though it's just kind of making that equal playing field, that whole procedural justice they call it is like, why are they getting what I'm not getting? And 
Mm-hmm. And why are they getting help? Why are there, you know, there's, a, why is my quota lower? Their quota lower than mine. Why is this? And it becomes um, a toxic part to the culture because the businesses haven't taken the time or given that individual an opportunity to get what they need to work best. So if they felt that they had what they need to work best and were given the opportunity to say that, they're not going to judge somebody who's neurodivergent, concealing their identity, forgetting what they need. That's and- an interesting point. And thank you for bringing that up because I never, I myself never thought about it that way. Yeah. I mean, you know, it comes down to it. We all, you know, we always want to say like, what do you have? Uh, I want some of that. I mean, it it goes back to when my son was a baby, not baby, when he was young and being diagnosed um, and we were getting services through our school district, you know, people always like, how how many hours of behavioral therapy did you get? How many hours of speech did you get? And I'm like, I got what he needs. (laughs) Back off. It's not a, it's not a contest. You know, it's, we all get what we need to do what we need to do. And um, so many people are worried about being cheated. Yes. And so, once again, if you provide that opportunity to every person, half the time they won't even ask for anything, but they Hmm. feel empowered to ask. And that will get rid of some of these, you know, ill feelings between, um, you know, coworkers and managers and people getting stuff. It's it's just not that complicated in that area. Hmm. And that's a very good point. And I also appreciate that you brought up the how, since no diversity tends to be invisible, I think you're right. Employers, they tend to focus more on the physical disabilities. And if it's something they can't see, they can't process that. Yeah. And it's hard to process because if you think about, you know, every person you know who's neurodivergent, um, they're not not the same. And the way that the, you know, conditions or whatever affects an individual is totally different. Mm. It It also is their upbringing. Um, it, it, it's also the environment they're in, the environment you're in may be home, friends, work is so greatly impacts an ab- person's ability to be strong and to, to be able to cope like the coping strategies that come in and we all cope, but we all have coping strategies, but to what extent and what cost are you paying to, to do these coping? And that's the thing that it has to be a happy balance between, you know, everybody meeting in the middle hmm. and people getting what they need. So they're not, you know, they're not breaking themselves. So we all have to conform a little bit. Hmm. I have to conform, you have to conform. We all have to meet in the middle. And you know, and I totally agree with that too, because at the end of the day, we're all different. We're, we're not a single, I say, perfect model. So we're all different. And I think at the end of the day, every single manager and leader, they just have to adjust to everyone's differences. And instead of neurodiversity being equal disabled, just accept the differences of that one person. It's like we try to, we're moving into talking more about, um, or moving away from the neurodiversity term to cognitive diversities. Mm, the, the way we're doing that is because right now there's all this focus on, um, you know, color, race, um, and gender, which Yes, the focus needs to be on that too. But if all these companies are putting this money and effort into looking at those areas, they're really missing out on disabilities and neurodiversity. Yes. And the thing that almost stresses me up out and keeps me up at night is the fact that disability and neurodiversity do not care what color you are. 
They do not mm-hmm. care what gender you are. They don't care what race you are. They don't care what social economic class you are. They're there for everybody. So by not addressing these, when we look at diversity and we look at inclusion in organizations, we're not doing it right. Yes, I. that's sadly true. Yeah. So, you know, we're missing out on, on so many people. And so when we talk about cognitive diversity, we try to look at kind of, we're, we're working on a visual and it's, it's challenging. But if you think about a person and really embracing their whole self, mm. the whole person. So that means, you know, the way I did think differently, the way my life experiences from, you know, for me growing up um, in Hispanic and white neighborhood and, and what my parents did and the education I was able to get and, you know, almost getting my butt kicked every day in uh, junior high for looking white, um, you know, like all these little experiences, you know, having a son diagnosed with autism at two, having a daughter with ADHD, you know, all those things are created me as a person. Yes. And you can't take out one of those things. That's who I am. And so if you're not bracing all that part of me, then you're not embracing me. And so it doesn't matter if you you hire me because I'm female, you hire me because I have a tech degree, um, you know, you hire me because I'm, you know, part minority. That stuff isn't going to make me feel better. What's going to feel better is you hire me because of everything I have in me and I what it. I've been through. But it's hard for people to comprehend. So we're trying to show a graphic to talk about that more. And it is, you know, we're all talking about this graphic and man, it's hard because <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so, um, out there. So, you know, I'll have to run it by you too, Nathan, because I, it's, I think it's important though, because I just think we're wasting so much energy and money on the initiatives instead of actual change. Yep. One analogy I sometimes like to use is kind of like, uh, imagine a, stat- a statue of a person just made of glass, colorless, you can't tell the age or anything. It just respect that person as a person and, and because we're all different. And I think yeah. the glass can essentially represent that. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, seriously, I mean, we're all human beings and I know, you know, I don't, and I'm not discrediting any of the movements going on now by saying that, but the, the problems wouldn't be here if we would have looked at that in the first place. How about Mm. that? So we always talk about um, deconstructing the model of disability. You know, it's almost deconstructing discrimination in some ways too. Um, We created these things as a society. So we can uncreate them. And that's Absolutely. kind of our goal. Let's uncreate this whole disability model um, because it has its place, but it's been overdone and it's just not being used correctly. And it's not necessarily empowering people. And that's what it was supposed to do. And you know what? And you, you brought up a good point because with COVID, especially, we are li- literally going through one of the biggest changes in in our current point of history. So why not take advantage of that? It's like when things are disrupted, the door opens to change. How about we 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 make changes right now? Yeah, and you make a good point, but I think um, at the beginning of COVID, we saw just a scramble. Yes. Pure scramble. You know, and I was sitting uh, doing a um, workshop on interviewing and everybody's like, how do I interview with COVID? How do I just like, what? you know what? We don't know. So, you know, I've been researching this topic because we're going to have a section on remote working and how to manage neurodivergent employees when they are working remote in my LinkedIn training re- recording. Um, 
And, you know, I think the problem is this another stigma that's come up is, oh, you know, I'm going to use autistic again. Autistic people don't like, you know, a human interaction. They don't like, you know, coming into the office because it's too hard on them. They love this remote working. So this is perfect for them. And I don't think that's always the case. I think a lot of people are lonely. And I think that there's that happy medium, once again, that compromise of being able to not be taxed, but also have human relationships. Mm -hmm. People think people with autism are are robots and um, they don't require attention. I mean, my son's the opposite. That guy, we had to say Space Invader because he wanted to hug all the time and everybody else. He's just a love bug. Um, (laughs) You can't, you know, you can't generalize that. So that's what I'm seeing now is there's so many organizations saying, oh, people are so much happier working remotely, especially, you know, people who are autistic who don't like social interaction. And I'm like, whoa, you can't generalize again. You know, I, I have one kid who works remotely and is doing great. I have another kid working remotely who is miserable mm-hmm. and having such a hard time focusing and is not getting their needs met. So how can we say that's going to work for everybody? So we're going to have to have some kind of hybrid model that's going to allow people to to decide what's best for them. We can't give up all our offices. People need human mm-hmm. interactions. And, you know, and this isn't going to work, this, you know, virtual thing for everybody. Yep. And that's a very good point. And I, it goes back to what we were talking about before, where people are all different. Everyone has different needs. And yeah. The, the other p- piece is uh, there is a common perception about neurodiverse condition that conditions such as autism primarily affects like white, uh, mostly uh, men only, resulting in many, many women going un- undiagnosed or and ignored. W- what do you think can be done to raise awareness for for women who are on the who have neurodiverse conditions? Well, now that you happen to mention that, uh, we are ripping off the band aids in March at Grit and Flow. So we started doing a monthly social media campaigns. And so this month is about um, showing real people who are neurodivergent talking about their challenges to getting employment, the barriers in the current process, and then the enablers. Um, Next month, we're working on inclusion. Um, In March, we are doing all women. It is all about women neurodivergent. We are not holding back. And you know, I think what got me and I kind of gave the the reins to one of my teammates, Nicole, who's a female late diagnosed neurodivergent, because I kept talking to people and a lot of women who were late diagnosed. And all I kept hearing is about rape and being taken advantage of because they didn't understand. And I started thinking, how can we change this from the employment standpoint? I mean, I'm not you know, how can I do this in my realm? And I said, if we can inform people that work in organizations about this and they can start informing their employees and we can start training them on what, you know, autism looks like, what ADHD looks like and being aware of these things to help with coworkers, then maybe there's a chance they can identify that their daughter or son has it earlier mm-hmm. early intervention and start teaching them to protect themselves in some ways, because I don't see it happening as much. I mean, it still happens. I'm not ignorant to that. The people who are diagnosed and have some protections or have learned some things, what I'm hearing is the people that had no idea and they were exactly. trying to fit in so hard. 
and what they've had to go through the abuse it's just it it broke, broke breaks my heart it just makes me sick so we're changing it we're making everybody aware we don't care Definitely. what it is because you're you're absolutely right because the stories i hear are similar and i think it comes down to also like should be the part where, where we talked about how a lot, a lot of girls and women they just don't know because these they spend their lives essentially wearing a mask and trying just trying to fit in each day and that alone is exhausting and the end result like we when you add it into that as well things like culture pressure from parents pressure from society it's a lot for some people like men and women to do each day and uh, sadly that in certain especially in certain countries that it it does lead to things like suicide or mm-hmm. or extent many many years of depression anxieties like we got we we have the, we as a society we need to do more to address it as a at an early age like you said yeah and i think the culture thing is a big thing i mean we talk a lot about cultures and acceptance in the cultures um and it's harder for some i mean i i definitely know it's harder for men to adapt to a a son that has autism or anything else but you know when we first uh, my husband tom and i when jake got diagnosed um, at two years four months we were at this it used to be called four oc kids um this place and they were just starting a parent support group and i think we got diagnosed on thursday and the first support group was on tuesday and we showed up and they took us through the fact that we were going through a process of grieving and it doesn't matter who you are. You have hopes and dreams for your kids and, you know, you're always relating them to your personal experiences you've had in your life. And, you know, will they do this? And will they do that? And going to this right away made us say, you have to let go of all that and embrace mm. the person they are now. And you don't know what that is, but you need to let yourself mourn that they're not going to be that traditional kid. You got to mourn that and then you got to be able to move on. You know, uh, that's an interesting point. And I think a message like that, that needs to go out to parents because that, I never even thought about that before, but that sounds tremendously beneficial. Yeah. I mean, we do. We, I mean, it's not bad to have hopes and dreams a certain way. It's because that's my experience. That's my world that I grew up in. So I expect, you know, you'd have similar thoughts as me as my child. Um, and what we've learned, you know, as parents, especially parents of neurodivergent kids, is they're a lot of ways nothing like us. And we have to embrace them for who they are and what makes them happy, not what makes us happy. And it's not easy. I mean, Tom and I try really, really hard. <laughs> really, really hard. But we're not perfect at it. And um, But, you know, I mean, I think that going through that right away after diagnosis for us really made all the world a difference. And we dove in and got Jake whatever he needed to make sure he had the best opportunity to have a successful life. And I am proud to say he graduated high school from a college for high school in May. He's going to Chapman university. He's using his passion, his flow. Um, you know, he's, he's doing video game design and creative writing because he loves both of those and wants to put it together. Um, you know, not without his challenges, but he's kicking butt. Um, and nice. I think it's because we embraced him and we, got him what he needed. So I hope that for every kid, for every person. And that's incredible. And I think it goes back to our, what we talked about even before. Like, we just got to identify the differences in each individual person, like stop categorizing people into like normal versus not normal. Just 
embrace, identify the differences and just embrace them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, even like we use the word neurotypical and it's like, no one's, no one's neurotypical. You hear from, you know, it's like, I know I just meant not neurodivergent, but what does it really mean? Like how, I don't even know, like how to talk about this stuff. And I do this, you know, 24 hours a day between my, my home life, my dissertation and my work, the language and the wording to make everybody happy is, is impossible. So, Mm. you know, I should have started this whole podcast saying i'm sorry if i offend you by referring to you to a way you don't like i'm doing my best (laughs) you know um and i think that's that's the hard part too in this this group is we're we're all trying to figure out what we want to be as a group a society of Mm -hmm. different thinkers um and since a lot of the skills we have doesn't don't really conform well it's hard to have that compromise to a point. So there's going to be challenges. And, you know, I think that's a learning opportunity for all of us. Yes. Yes, indeed. Okay. And because one thing I dream about is I'm waiting for the day when, where people just like me, who is actually autistic, I mean, for the day when people like me can take, take off the mask and just live in a society and world where, differences, my differences and differences of people everywhere can just be respected. Like, I really like, appreciate with it, how you described it, where it's not about being disabled. It's about differences and we just got to accept it. Yeah. And yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, and this is easy for me to say, so I totally get that. But if people start taking off their masks and being yes. honest and people will learn. And that's kind of one thing we're doing with our interviews and our videos in the Grit and Flow series is we want you to see, look at this beautiful young lady who's so articulate, who is also autistic. You know, look at this, you know, um, the, you know, this man who's, you know, he's African-American, Black, person of color, whoever he, defer, you know, prefers to be called. Yes, he has autism too. It happens. Believe me, they're not just all white males. Hmm. And but look how our articulate he is. But understand his challenges and how it affects him. Have you ever thought about it that way? And so we want to show people what neurodivergent people look like, and they look yes. just like everybody else. Exactly. Yes. And that's and that's a beautiful message. Yeah. Very, okay. And yep, we're about time. And thank you, Tiffany, for your time today. Yeah. It was fun. I always like talking about this stuff. I'm very passionate about it. So I appreciate the opportunity to share my vision with you. And uh, thank you for everything you do. So, so you're involved with many initiatives and incredible initiatives all over the world. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I try. Well, hopefully we'll do some good stuff. Yep. Thank you. Have a no problem. Day. Thanks.